specifically where we are, what we see the context is that we're sitting in the middle of the Sabbath, right? And this is a really interesting time because if you know the Sabbath, then you know that the Sabbath is a time that's supposed to be set aside for the Lord, right? And then you have Jesus coming in, breaking all kinds of so-called rules, right? And that always blows me away when I particularly look at this text. In Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, you see Jesus healed a paralytic, and the scribes say he is blaspheming, right? So all the way back in the beginning of uh, Mark chapter 2, you see Jesus already dis disrupting things, and you see this back and forth already happening between him and the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 2 as well, you begin to see Jesus when he's sitting with the sinners, and the scribes and the Pharisees question, like, why is he doing this? Right. So, again, you continuing to see this back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, so much so that when you get to Mark chapter two, verses 18 through 22, you see that the people around begin to question Jesus about fasting. Right. So they like, hold up, Jesus, the Pharisees and they be they be fasting. Why y'all ain't fasting? Right. So not only are the Pharisees beginning to have these issues, but the people are beginning to take notice that Jesus is doing something a little bit different than what they're used to seeing the Pharisees do. Then you look in Mark chapter two, verses 23 to, through 28, and the disciples are plucking grain and the Pharisees question, why are you working during this time? Right. So you continuing to see this back and forth. Jesus is just coming through, disrupting all types of so-called rules. Then before we get to our text, you see in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you see Jesus heals this man with the withered hand. And what's really interesting at this point is that the Pharisees then link up with their enemies to begin to talk about Jesus, right? Talk about how we're going to destroy him. Really interesting to see Jesus coming through breaking rules, right? Some of us wouldn't call Jesus a lawbreaker, right? In this sense, he is specifically breaking rules. I find that amazing. It blows me away. It's tradition that's been set up. And these traditions have been set up in order for them to attempt to protect the law, right? We know that. So the Pharisees set up these other rules in an attempt to keep people from breaking the actual law. In doing so, though, they were actually breaking the law themselves. Very interesting, right? In their, in their zealous attempt or self-righteous attempt, right, to try to protect the law, you see them breaking the law. Really kind of blows me away. Let me quote something from you for you. Um, that kind of brings some of this, bears a little bit of, of weight to some of this. To understand, what, to understand what is the issue in these accounts, it is helpful to understand something of the rabbinical tradition that lay behind the Sabbath-breaking charges leveled against Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisaic tradition by Jesus' day had developed into an array of petty rules having to do nothing with the law. It focused on physical works that had little to do with the spirit and intent of the law, and which, in fact, often violated the law itself. The scribes among the Pharisees created and transmitted the Pharisaic rabbinical, rabbinical um, traditions. The body of traditional law that they formulated, th this body of traditional law that they have formulated, although authoritative for Jews who follow 
Fern said tradition, much of it is not directly supported by scripture, but is intended as a hedge about the law, meaning that, that gate around the law, to prevent any possibility of its being broken. Ironically, in an attempt to ensure the law keeping by putting a hedge about the law, the Pharisees were breaking the law for God had said, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. By adding the weight of their tradition to the law of God, they bound heavy burdens hard to bear and lay themselves and men on their shoulders. Just this beautiful picture of sin, how in a zealous attempt to try to protect people from breaking the law, we set up laws, right, and thus end up breaking the law. I feel like we all in some ways have responded in our own lives and to others' lives like the Pharisees, right? Especially when we're do-gooders, right? Us good Christians, right? We begin to set up boundaries and say, don't this, don't that. It's really out of wisdom. Protect yourself, right? And then when they break the rules or the hedges that we set up to keep those people from falling, we act as if they've actually broken God's law. When in reality, the only thing they've broken is an opinion to try to keep them from actually breaking the law. It's a very dangerous and, and subtle place to end up, right? To end up in this place where you want to do well by God, but in doing so, your own self-righteousness, it now becomes a heavy burden on somebody else. It's a dangerous place to be. When we fast forward to our text, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, the text tells us Jesus with, withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. Let's, let's, let's pause there for a second. The first thing I do when I look at the text is I ask myself, what is going on, right? And I question, I said, why would Jesus withdraw? The text tells us that Jesus withdrew. Why would he do that? Well, we know at the, at the, end, of, at the end of whatever you guys kind of walk through in Mark chapter Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, you saw that the Pharisees had sought to actually destroy Jesus, right? And then the text tells us that he withdrew from that situation. Now, that always blows me away when I get a chance to see Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity at work, right? And that's kind of the picture that we see here because in Jesus' divinity, he could have crushed everything that was, that was trying to destroy him, right? We're all very aware of that. In his humanity, right, in his submission to the Father, he knew that it wasn't time for any of that to take place. So Jesus makes the choice to withdraw from the situation, even though he could have thoroughly engaged the situation. And Jesus is, he's a big boy. He can handle himself. You know what I mean? He can handle himself. But he made the choice to withdraw from this situation. That always blows me away when I see Jesus humble himself in such a way, right? Because I know my tendencies. You know, when somebody buck up against me, my tendency is, so look, it ain't right all the time. I'm just going to say that. But it's interesting when I see Jesus and his attempt to, to not just, because he's not withdrawing because he's afraid. That's really important for you to understand. Jesus isn't scared. He's not like, oh, man, they're going to get me. He's not withdrawing out of fear. He's really withdrawing out of obedience. Right? And it's a beautiful thing to see. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Great crowd followed. 
from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, all of these different places. And when you, and when you begin to look at the map, what you see is all of these different diversities that are represented from all of these places around Jerusalem, Judea. And you see that there are economical differences, right, diversities. You see that there are social diversities that exist, even some language barriers that exist. Because the people in, Ju in Judea spoke even a little bit differently than the people that were existing where Jesus was currently at. So you see all of these different people that represent all of these different walks of life that are now coming because they want to they want to be able to just touch Jesus. Right. It's, it's mind blowing when you think about it. When you begin to fast forward, you see that the great it says that when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And I had to think, you know, because it wasn't no cell phones back then for those, you know. For, for, you know, you who are too young and have never lived without a cell phone before in your life. I've lived without a cell phone, and, you know, I remember pay phones on every corner, you know. Um, I'm not that old, but sometimes I feel old, you know what I mean? Um, but it's interesting. They didn't have cell phones. There's no way to long-distance communicate. So how are these people finding out about what Jesus is doing? Word of mouth. People just talking. You know people talk, right? Y'all know people talk. People are talking. They like, man, you hear about what this dude is doing? That's my, that's my, you know, rendition, you know. My Ebonics rendition of what's happening in the text. Y'all hear about what, what's going on? This dude, Jesus, this dude, he been healing people. We should go up. We should go. We need to try to get at this dude, right? So everybody's making an attempt to try to actually get to Jesus so that they could touch him, be healed by him. Verse 9 says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It's a lot of weight in this passage, and you can kind of miss it. You can kind of miss the weight that's in this passage. Remember, it's the Sabbath. Jesus has been doing all types of things in these little isolated incidents all throughout Mark chapter 2, right? So now you got a situation where we just know he withdrew because they were seeking to destroy him. All the people are coming, and Jesus could have been like, you know, I'm going to chill out on healing people. You know what I mean? The Sadducees, they watching me. I'm going to chill out. But no. This text tells us that he's healing many people. So now it goes from these isolated incidents and situations to this huge crowd of people that are coming from all of these different places. What, what burns the weight on this particular text is I guarantee you that majority of these people, all of these people are aware of what the Sabbath is and that this is the Sabbath, right? And the mind-blowing thing is Jesus is healing all of these people. And, and the reason that there's weight on this text is because imagine what this is making the Pharisees look like. Not how it's making the Pharisees feel, but imagine how it's making the Pharisees look. In the eyes of people that are used to Pharisees telling them that these are traditions and rules that need to be upheld. And then you got Jesus coming and doing good work. Right? I know the Pharisees are like, 
This is crazy. And we're going to see, you know, you see later on as y'all continue to walk through Mark exactly what happens. But it goes from these isolated incidents to what the Pharisees would probably call mass lawbreaking. You know what I mean? Now Jesus is a massive lawbreaker. It makes me think about how do we, how do we view people, right? What does it really mean to break law? Makes you think about that. It makes you wonder because how many of us, if we were alive in Jesus' day, would have been ready to stone him for breaking the law, for breaking tradition, myself included. Looking at Jesus and seeing the standard set and looking at him and seeing what he's doing and ready to stone him and kill him. Because I feel like he is breaking the law. When in reality, he's not breaking the law. He's breaking tradition. Not only is he breaking tradition, but he's bringing true meaning to what the law actually represents. Right? We fast forward to verse 11. Verse 11 says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Texts like this always convict me. It always convicts my heart because you have the so-called law keepers who could not see Jesus for who he is, while those who are actually unclean spirits definitely recognize him. This always stirs me because I don't want to just be a law keeper. I don't want to just be a do-gooder. I don't want to just do good things. I don't want to just keep law. The law was always meant to be a schoolmaster, right? That's what the text teaches us. And the law was meant to actually point us to Jesus so that we can see we're really not law keepers. We're really incapable of keeping law to the standard in which God desires, right? And the law is really meant for us to look at Jesus and to say, I recognize that I'm incapable of keeping the law, and thus I'm in desperate need of the one who has kept the law on my behalf. That's gospel, right? And the reason texts like this scare me is because I can examine my life and my heart and think of moments in my life every day where I'm actually trying to be a law keeper. I, I'm, what I'm actually doing is, is, is unconsciously believing what Jesus did is not enough. It's not enough. I need to do more. I need to be better. Not because we shouldn't pursue holiness and righteousness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about positionally. From time to time, my heart makes me think that I need to do something to positionally make me positionally better. When we know that our position only comes from what Christ accomplished. Practically, we're called to walk that out, right? Practically, we're called to pursue righteousness. Practically, we're called to um, not to attempt to keep the law for righteousness' sake, but as an expression of the love for the righteousness that's been accredited to us. But I often day-to-day find myself being a law keeper. And you know what law keepers do? 
they turn other people into lost people. They press upon other people and tell them that they need to keep the law rather than tell them to trust Jesus. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. So I challenge you to think through how does this text make you examine your own heart? What type of law keeper are you? How has it affected you even mentally? Do you sometimes feel like you're further away from Jesus? Do you feel like you're closer to Jesus? Do you feel like your law keeping is what makes God pleased with you rather than what Jesus accomplished on your behalf? As you continue to look at this text, what you do is you then cross-reference this text. And what you find out is if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, you see Matthew give a sneak peek into this story as well. And what you notice is that Mark kind of breaks down some of the details of this particular text, right, what's actually happening. But when you look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, what happens is Matthew then tells us why Jesus is actually doing all the law breaking that we see, right? So Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. 15 starts like this. Jesus aware of this withdrew from there. So Jesus aware that the Pharisees were seeking to destroy him. He withdrew. And many follow him. We see the kind of same thing. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17. This was to feel what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So now what's going to happen is we get, we, we're about to get a quote from Isaiah. One of the most beautiful things that I always appreciate is when somebody interprets for me and I know the interpretation is right. You know, you get those rare moments in scripture where, you know, somebody will interpret the Old Testament for you and you're like, yes, because I'm really struggling with that text, right? And then they just like, I got you, I got you. I'm, I'm going to unpack the text for you. And this is, what's, this is exactly what's happening. So you get to verse 18. It says, behold, my servant whom I, am, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So now we see all of this, all of these things that just took place from Jesus withdrawing, from Jesus beginning to heal people, the Pharisees seeking to destroy him, all of these particular things. We see in the text that what's happening is Isaiah is saying that those things had to happen in order for this to be fulfilled. Behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. This idea that you have, G he's really confirming a lot of things about Christ. So I need you to imagine a person that's receiving this letter that, that, that's been written. And they reading this, knowing probably of what Jesus has actually done. And he's confirming for them how well pleased the Father is in Jesus, despite what's considered to be this law breaking. So you mean to tell me God the Father is pleased with the Son who has committed what we want to say is law-breaking? Well, he seems to think so if he takes this text and says this is the purpose of those things existing. Goes on to say, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So this is when it gets beautiful, right? 
Because now you start to see why all of this law breaking is happening, right? So Jesus is tearing down these traditions that separate those who think they deserve to be close to God from those who they think are far from God, right? And he's breaking down this idea that these traditions need to exist in order for people to be close to this God, right? So he's already starting to work. And we know this started before the earth ever existed. But for the sake of the text, he's doing his work, right, to, to proclaim this idea that the Gentiles will be wor- welcomed into this fold in such a way that you understand that those that you think are keeping the law are actually breaking the law. So when you look at the Gentiles, you begin to realize that they deserve to be in the fold. Gentiles is just anybody who is not Jewish, right? So he says he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So what's happening in this, that we just, what just happened in that text is already a way by which Christ is proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. You see this desire for justice. Think about justice, to do what's right. You know what I mean? To, to say like, hold on, this is wrong. And you see Jesus doing that in a way by which he's literally calling out people for what they're doing. It's mind-blowing because you have these people that would sit and point the finger at the Gentiles and talk about who they are, what they not, what they do, what they should do. And Jesus steps in and says, no, nah, what about you? Why? Can you imagine how they felt? How angry do you think they were? The religious leaders who think they killing it. And Jesus like, you not killing it. They probably, blo- I cannot imagine what they're feeling at this particular point. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This idea that I don't even think that the people who are coming to be healed are understanding fully why Jesus is, is even doing the healing. Because it's not just about the healing in, of, in and of itself. There's a bigger picture, right? The healing is a means by which he's using, and he's pleased and joyful to be able to serve people in that way. But there's a, such a bigger picture. And the people in the streets that are even being healed probably are not even seeing the real reason of what's actually happening right now. It's blo- that, that type of stuff scares me. God, I want to know when you at work. I want to know when you're doing something, despite how I feel about what's being done. Sometimes we get, in our, we get in God's way based off our own traditions, thoughts, ideals. We get in God's way. It's mind-blowing. Verse 20. I only got a couple more verses and we'll be done. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentile will hope. Beautiful passage. A bruised reed or reed was used for a lot of different things, for flutes and pins and stuff like that. But when a reed would be broken, it, people just considered it useless. They would immediately throw it out and replace it. Right? This wick 
just like the wick you would use on a candle, right, when it, it would be frustrating because you can't keep it lit. So it's like, man, get rid of the wick. Let's get a new one, right? This paints this, this, paints this picture of weak and broken people. And this idea that Jesus will in no way throw out the weak and broken people because of their weakness and their brokenness. Which I've been guilty of. Looking at somebody else's frailty, right, and being frustrated because of their lack of strength. And Jesus is painting this picture, this is painting this picture that he's come for the broken. This should represent the body, like everybody broken. If you don't think you broken, that shows how broken you really are. <laughs> you already proved the point. Case closed. It's a done deal. All of us are broken. All of us are these bruised reeds. All of us are these smoldering wicks, right? And sometimes we feel the weight of that in our own personal lives, in our own personal Christian walk, if we're honest with each other. I often feel like a smoldering wick. I'm like, Lord, did you really do something in my heart? When I feel like a bruised reed, I'm ready to throw myself out. I know other people are ready to throw me out. Did you really do something in my heart? Have you really done work in my heart? And when I look at myself and I begin to examine other people, then I start to ask myself, why don't I recognize bruised reeds? Why don't I recognize smoldering wicks? You know, you heard somebody say before that we great lawyers for ourselves and great judges for everybody else. Right? Amazing lawyers for ourselves, like Johnny Conklin. That's the only real lawyer that I kind of know the name of. You know, I'm sorry. Great lawyers for ourselves and great judges for everybody else. We, we often notice our pain, our hurts, and our frustrations, and we often don't see that in other people. But Jesus has come for that specific purpose, and it says, until he brings justice, victory. That's such a beautiful phrase. He wants to bring justice, victory. He wants justice to have victory. And he's showing you where the connection is. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is all about the Gentiles who are supposed to be invited into God's fold, right? And he's like, until this is made right, that they understand and know and are aware that they are called to be made a part of God's fold, there is no victory until that happens. And he wants his name to be the one that they hope in. The most dangerous thing about this is we see a snapshot of God's heart. His heart is that in his name, the Gentiles would hope. But the very traditions that the Pharisees have put into place really do an injustice to the very heart of God. It's crazy that they can think they're doing right, but you're literally doing the exact opposite of God's heart. 
Because the traditions and things that you're setting up are blocking out the people that God is calling to himself. It's a crazy place to be. A couple things that I think we can pull from this text that I think would be beautiful for us. And I'll start from the down, from the down coming up. I think number one is just making sure that we look and are aware first that we are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. But also that we allow others to be as well. Right? We want to be comforted in our brokenness. But might we be quick and hasty to comfort others in their brokenness as well. Also, might we be ones that are aware of God's heart in circumstances and situations that traditionally we disagree with. When we pause and ask ourselves, God, what is your heart? That's one of the most difficult things in the world to do. To go against everything that you think you know. I've been so guilty of this. So guilty of this. Another piece for us to begin to look at (coughs) is to have the posture that Jesus had. The idea that for the sake of obedience, Jesus was willing to withdraw. He was willing to remove himself from the circumstance for the sake of obedience. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Another point, again, to remind ourselves, like, do we see Jesus as who he is? Do we see Jesus as who he is? Or are we those who are trying to keep the law in order to be right with God? Because if you truly see Jesus as who he is, then you recognize that law-keeping will never make you right with God. Only trusting Jesus will. Our desire to obey God's laws come as a result of our love for Christ and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It's one of those things. I'm going to close by saying this. Um, I'm going to ruffle a couple of feathers right now. Because I think we should. When I look at this text and I look at our country, right, I see a lot of similarities in a lot of different ways. I'm not here to preach a political perspective or any of that. I don't even know if I consider myself a Republican or any of that, really. I just love Jesus. But one of the things that I do know is that I see in our country specifically a divide that happens not just amongst unbelievers, but specifically within the church. It's a very scary place to be. Uh, this is as, as an African-American man, it's been one of the most discouraging times in my Christian walk. And I love the body of Christ. I've always been an advocate for the body. Right, I remember Paul Washer saying, you need to watch how you talk about the bride, right? Because if you talk bad about my wife, I'm knocking you out, flat out. I repent later. But how you talk about my wife is going to present an issue between me and you. 
right? So I've always been an advocate for the bride of Christ. But to be at a time where there is such a divide, even within the body, brings me much heartache and much pain. When I look at this text, <laughs> with everything that's happening from protests, I live in St. Louis. I've been involved in protesting. I've been on the ground, on the ground, protesting with people. And I look and I see this divide. And it's one of those heartbreaking things that begin to make me say, like, Lord, what is really happening for us as a body? What I do know and what I'm very confident in when I read scriptures like this is that there's a difference between breaking the law and breaking God's law. Especially when the law is actually smothering God's law. Jesus did it. It's one of the reasons that I think I would probably stone Jesus if he was doing this while I right now. I would probably be very upset with his breaking of the law. I think many of us would be upset with his breaking of the law. I say that to say this. Might we look at what's happening in our country, whether you agree with pro protesting or disagree with protesting, whether you agree with somebody kneeling during the national anthem or not, might we all pause for a second and say, God, are you doing something that I don't see? I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you where you should be or where you should land, but I am encouraging you to say, pause, God, are you doing something that I don't see? And do I love you enough that if what I see is really you, and goes against what I think or have been taught, do I love you enough to set aside what I think or have been taught to the side? Do I love you enough to do that? Again, not what you should do or what you should do, shouldn't do, but just the idea that you will pause. God, are you doing something? Because if you are, if you are, I want to make sure that I'm on that side of the fence. Jesus burns to light these ideas that some of our own traditions that we've set up and put into place often need to be crashed down for the sake of justice being brought to victory. And I'm not talking about individual police cases to make myself clear. I'm talking about period across the board from a racial divide to an economical divide to a social divide, Jesus steps in and he tears things down and it makes people very uncomfortable. Are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are you uncomfortable as I talk about this? Are you wondering why is he doing this? I'm uncomfortable. It's okay. I'm sure the disciples were uncomfortable. It's okay. I'm sure Jesus was a little uncomfortable. It's okay. But my prayer is that we don't just be uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable. But that, that the uncomfortability that we face will push us towards Jesus and away from ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you thankful for your grace and for your mercy.
thankful that you love us despite us trying to be law keepers from time to time. Thankful that you kept the law in such a way that when we are trying to be law keepers, even your keeping of the law protects us from that. Thankful, Lord, that you come and you tear down traditions of the heart in such a way that those who love you are immediately made known. My prayer, Lord God, is that we would look at your word and we would challenge ourselves to draw close to you, that we would be advocates for justice no matter whose front it falls on. Might we be advocates for law-breaking whenever that law smolders your law, your truth. Might we be advocates for ripping down the walls of tradition for the sake of your glory and honor. I pray, Lord God, that we all would pause when we see things and first ask ourselves, is God involved? Is God involved? And might we challenge ourselves to say, do we love him enough to be involved if we see him involved, even if others think we shouldn't be? We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you love us despite our frailty and our brokenness. I pray that all of us in here, that all of us that are smoldering wicks and bruised reeds, that as we seek comfort from others, that we might pursue the comfort of others as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, as we consider the day um, that Jesus walked on this earth, um, if you were to think of the religious culture or the climate, a word that we could, um, just even based on our text, kind of characterize it as would be drift. That they were a people, a culture who drifted ultimately from God's heart. And as his people, uh, we constantly want to be making sure that that is not happening in our lives as well. And so um, what Jesus gave us as a, as a frequent reminder of what it costs for us to be called his people um, is the Lord's Supper, is communion. And so at Parkview East, we celebrate that every other week, and this is a time for us to celebrate ultimately what it cost Jesus um, to make us his people, that he spilled out his blood on the cross um, so that we could receive his grace and his mercy. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and, and step in a time right now where we're going to do that. The way we do it at Parkview is this is a time where we celebrate what he accomplished and we also evaluate um, what's going on in our lives. If there's areas and places where we can see drift happening in our lives, this is a time between us and the Lord right now to call it what it is and to deal with it. And so um, this is a time also that is reserved for those who are people of faith, who have received his grace and mercy. And so if, you, if that doesn't um, describe you, then you, there is no shame in the game. Feel free to just hold back. Right now, this is a time for God's people to come around the table together. And so there's three different tables here. There's uh, some breadcrumbs. We may not have as um, as many as we need for everybody, so feel free and just break you off a little piece, okay? And then you can uh, dip it in the cup and take it, and then we'll be back, just, you know, back to your seat. So you just kind of get up as you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some scripture, and I'm going to pray for us. Um, and then uh, when everybody kind of gets back, the band will lead us in our, in our final song. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, Lord, I pray right now. Um, Lord, we just we celebrate um, for the folks in this room that that we are a people that you um, you saw and that you loved and you did something to make us your people, Father. And we um, come together now and we just celebrate and recognize what it costs um, to make us your people. Lord, I pray that you would. Uh, um, just search our hearts right now, and if there's areas, if there's places in our life that we have drifted um, from your heart, from your law, Father, I pray you would call us out. Lord, we confess that uh, that we're sinners, um, and apart from you and the work that accomplished on that cross, Lord, um, we were just desperate. And so right now, we proclaim um, desperate sinners. In Jesus' name.